decision, what recourse, uh, what next steps would you recommend? Well, you know, we, we, we need to be rallying all over the country, and we need to be standing up, and we need to be very loud to insist that religion should be a cause for celebration, not discrimination, a cause for liberation, not subjugation, a cause for a bridge, not a bludgeon. And we have to say, just because this law is now the, is the law doesn't mean it's moral. And we have to stand up and say, if you're doing this, you are, a, you are not representing a good religion, you're representing bad religion. It's very important that everyone stand up and be very clear about where they stand on this law. Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch, we thank you so much for being with us, joining us from Massachusetts, president and CEO of Interfaith Alliance. And that does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Our website is democracynow.org. You're listening to KBOO Portland, 90.7 FM. The time is 8 a.m. Next up is Wednesday Talk Radio with Paul Rowland. This is Wednesday Talk Radio, and I am your host, Paul Rowland. And that was the unforgettable Floyd Red Crow Westerman from the uh, title song of his 1969 album, Custer Died for Your Sins, which actually came out and was based upon <clears throat> the book of the same year, Custer Died for Your Sins, by Vine Deloria Jr., actually was a relative of my guest today, Jacqueline Keeler. Good morning, Jackie. Yes, hi, Paul. And good morning. More or less good morning, as I wrote to you before, um, a, a rather brutal night for me and my poor 94-year-old mom, who suffered greatly from the extremely loud, frequent booming and banging all around us. It just seems like those fireworks, despite the despite the impotent fireworks ban in the city of Portland, I think maybe they're just doing it to despite, partly. But anyway, it was uh, for 
as you noted in in our exchange, uh, what about people with PTSD? What about how, how are we honoring our veterans out there with all these fireworks? But they just don't care, do they? They don't care what the effect is. Anyway, so yes, I had a fairly sleepless night myself, but here we are, and uh, we're going to be talking about uh, July 4th, about a couple major uh, Supreme Court decisions that came down amongst the many note noteworthy and uh, on various sides of uh, the political divide uh, Supreme Court cases, but we're going to be talking in particular about two. But first, I haven't properly introduced you. We usually you, you usually are on the second Wednesday since you you came back a couple months ago. But um, my scheduled guest, uh, Dave Rovix, who will be on next week, actually uh, takes care of his kids this morning. So you were kind enough to switch, and we really do appreciate that. So you're on the first Wednesday. Anyway, you are a citizen of the Navajo Nation on your mom's side and on your dad's. Uh, uh, you are Yankton, Dakota, and you are a writer and activist, author, most recently of Standoff, Standing Rock, the Bundy Movement, and the American Story of Sacred Lands, which I hope you will read a little bit. So anyway, what's uh, what is what about this fireworks and the kind of the glorification of of uh, militarism you know, and, and the whole the whole myth of the United States seems to be kind of encapsulated in the Fourth of July. Yeah, I think it's a. <laughs> I think what is this? Uh, um, this is like a. I've heard. I've seen quotes. People say this is like the only national anthem that has, um, um, has the whole uh, <laughs> has the whole thing about. Oh, sorry. Are you there? Um, sorry, sorry. Has the whole thing about um, bombs bursting in air in oh. the national anthem? Oh, you know? yes, that's true. Yes, that's pretty unusual. And yeah, and um, yeah, and of course the uh, you know many many native people have a T-shirt which says "Merciless Indian Savages," which is all about uh, um, the quote from the Declaration of Independence, which refers to native people as merciless Indian savages. Well, actually, and, since you, know, you brought that up, do, do you do you have your book in front of you? You want to read that passage? Yeah. Um, which, which, which chapter do you want me to read again? <laughs> oh, it's uh, the, uh, uh, the introduction, page nine. The, okay. the second, this, uh, I don't know, you might want to start earlier, but the second and third paragraphs refer specifically to that. Okay, let's see here. All right. All right, let's see here. Today, uh, Americans? Today, yeah, today Americans think of the 13 original colonies as thoroughly settled places in shape and size. We think of them as they are today, and we forget how so much of that territory was new to the colonists. Students are rarely taught that the Revolutionary War was fought to gain access to these lands west of the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which forbade settlement west of the Appalachian Mountains. When the story of America is told, it is the opening phrase of the Declaration of Independence that is remembered. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What is forgotten is the Declaration's list of repeated injuries and usurpations by King George III, cited as reasons for dissolving political bands with Great Britain, which includes this characterization of native nations. He 
has excited, this is quoted from the Declaration of Independence, he has excited great domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of ages, all ages, sexes, and conditions. Smith, um, so, yeah, so the previous paragraph I described that um, John, because um, uh, the book Standoff deals with a Mormon family, the Bundys, I was um, discussing a bit about uh, the Second Great Awakening, which um, took place in Iroquois, um, the Iroquois homelands. Um, for over a thousand years, the Iroquois or Haudenosaunee Confederacy stood in what is now upstate New York. And after the uh, Revolutionary War, which was largely fought to gain access to um, particularly the Ohio Valley, um, but, um, but yeah, so that, um, and so the Mormonism was part of this religious reawakening that happened there uh, in the um, in upstate New York, and, and I, my theory is that partly that um, they called it the burned over region because there were so many different religious sort of things that happened there with the white settlers, and um, and my, my theory is that they were just so being out there in the land and seeing that it was actually really lived in for so long, and you know there were roads, there was you know the farmland was already done, everything was you know it was already done for them, you know, and I think it freaked them out because. They were taught that every that the Bible was the history of the world, and the idea that people lived outside of the realm of the Bible, you know, um, was was really was in a way that we can't comprehend today. Um, was really just a complete because um, back then, of course, many people the Bible may be the only book they ever read. Do you know what I mean? And uh, was was quite hard for them to take. And so I, I see it as a sort of sort of um, mental crumbling. Um, and turning to religion to understand the situation where they're they're in a landscape that they never expected or, or were unable to understand, and so that sort of was the intro to it. And, and it created so, a, what you call cognitive dis- dissonance. I exactly, guess, yeah. exactly, a cognitive dissonance, and um, and so you know, and this idea that somehow you know when when we think of the thirteen colonies, we you know the states are like these complete states, but you know a lot of them were still um, were still Indian land, you know, most of New York State. Um, even when I was when I went to school at Dartmouth in New Hampshire, you know um, Hanover there in New Hampshire, that was the frontier. That was pretty much, you know, um, beyond that was was Indian land. You know I mean, um, in seventeen in the seventeen sixties when the college was founded. So it's um, I think we often think of like it all very subtle, but the Indians were very much a real part of people's lives, colonists' lives at that time, and um, and and so I think um, it had an impact on their thinking and. And everything, and, and their, you know, of course, their concept of government. Um, they're an ocean away from monarchy, um, and what do they see right in their own vicinity? They see, you know, um, you know, governments of people who are who are accountable to the people, you know, in a way that their governments never were. I mean, you know, they often talk about how they fought for um, the whole purpose was to fight for sort of the right to the, the right to have their own voice. What is that? Um, uh, no taxation without representation, right? But the fact is that, um, gosh, like I think only one or two percent of the people in um, in England had the vote. I mean, it was a very small number. <laughs> most people were being taxed in England without having any say, you know. And I go into a much deeper thing um, in the chapter, um, looking at um, sort of how um, how uh, 
the whole concept of um, of this being a revolt against um, against uh, you know for not having this representation issue. Um, it was really about. It, I, I see um, the Revolutionary War as a, a right about. I think I wrote a whole chapter about this uh, being basically a revolt of the one percent. You know, um, a uh, <laughs> because it was the ruling class that was impacted by these things. I mean, the Stamp Act only impacted people who who knew how to read and write because it was a paper tax. <laughs> right, the one <laughs> no, the one percent of the of the colonists. Yeah. Yes. Yes. The one percent of the colonists, and um, and they they really won big. They won big. I mean, um, and. Um, they took a chance and they um, they won big and uh, but um, but yeah it was definitely and the rest uh, is history as they say exactly exactly and so they um, I also go into how um, George Washington actually started um, the French the first World War and I've mentioned that on the show before um, the French and Indian War and uh, what in Europe they call the Seven Years War um, as a young man when he was about twenty years old he was tasked by the um, Virginia um, um, by the, by the, com, com, the, um, the colony of Virginia to basically um, uh, to lead a militia to protect. Because back then, a lot of the different colonies like Virginia and Connecticut and such, they had no westward boundary uh, to their claims. So, you know, their claims extend all the way to the Pacific Ocean with the, um, um, under their um, sort of compacts with the, with the British government or the English government. And so they... Um, so a bunch of them had claims to the Ohio Valley, including Connecticut um, and Virginia. And so, um, so that he was sent there to try to protect Virginia's right to the Ohio Valley because France also was pushing its claim by building forts along the Ohio River. And so he went there with a, with a militia, and, um, and then what happened was they accidentally or somehow killed a French diplomat, and this caused an international incident which then, um, this was in western, Mass- western Pennsylvania, and, uh, and then basically that set off, that started the, uh, the First World War, World War Zero, um, the French Indian War. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so, yeah, so, and then he had a bunch of these, um, these uh, soldiers who had fought in the French Indian War had received, instead of payment, they had received um, land uh, in the Ohio Valley, which, of course, they did not have um, the right to, um, and so the war was, um, and then of course a lot of the founding fathers were members of land companies, um, and these land companies were sort of uh, corporations that they, the investors had claims to lands beyond um, the uh, uh, the <laughs> beyond the uh, Appalachian Mountains, beyond where the King King George III said they could go. So the, the the England wanted them to stay on the coast because they had more control over them, and they also didn't. They didn't, they didn't want them to start another world war. That war was very expensive to both France and England. It doubled their national debt, later leading probably to the total destabilization, you know, the fall of the French monarchy. And it was also very, you know, threatening to the English monarchy and system as well. So, so they didn't want the colonists hungry for land to cause another world war. And, um, and so when you talk about taxation, what was actually happening was the colonists were taxing their homeland and refusing to pay for the war they started. And this is why King George III did these taxes like the Stamp Act in order to basically try to get some of that money back that the colonists had started the war for. And then, um, and then even the quartering of soldiers mentioned in the, in the Declaration of Independence, that was because they had to quarter soldiers. They didn't have a lot of, you know, built um, 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 property in the colonies. 
and they had to have the soldiers there to prevent the colonists from invading Indian land. So there's this whole Indian component to it that is often not mm-hmm. explored or even understood. And and uh, for full disclosure, as I think I may have mentioned on this program before, but not sure, uh, uh, the, the first ancestor that uh, that we know of that my mom dug up in her, her years and years of research into our family history, um, uh, Harmonis Alkire actually mm-hmm. fought in that first war zero, as you as you call it, there in, in Ohio um, with the... Um, with the, 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 the Delaware and the Shawnee um, and the um, – sorry, my mind's not working. I, I used to know a little bit about that, that uh, the actual dynamics of that war, but the one that, that George Washington uh, started, basically. Anyway, um, so – wow, that's, uh, that's quite a, 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 a recounting of that uh, – the history that no one – that no one knows. I guess maybe if people have read the People's History of the United States, there's some of that. Um, obviously, some good uh, Native historians, including Vine Delore, have written some of this. You've certainly uh, added your piece to it uh, with your book Standoff and other writings. Um, one thing before we go on, before we continue in this vein, that I, uh, in my uh, sleep-addled, uh, deprived state, I forgot to bring in the, the you know... He- the, the the effect of those of of the fireworks on people with uh, PTSD or neurological issues, um, and just in general the the disrespect, you know the disrespect for all marginalized people, the disrespect for people, you know who are having serious uh, neurological issues, PTSD, etc. The you know disrespect for our veterans, but just the issue of fireworks, it just uh. You know, it's no, it's no country. It's obviously no country for old people. And, and as I also wrote to you, I, uh, I, I, I wish I, I tried to find it with some uh, Google searches, but there was a Western that I, I saw. I think maybe even had Jimmy Stewart in it. I don't know, but there's a Western from the, the, you know, the classic era of the West era of the Westerns, probably the fifties or sixties, um, where you know, uh, before you know, Hollywood got slightly woke to the. Uh, the realities um, from constant pressure by people like you and others, um, that uh, there is a scene where uh, I think they were maybe moving, they had to move on, you know, who knows what the actual context, the historic, if there's any historical context, but, you know, Native American tribes, people, a group was uh, moving on and they, they cruelly left their elders behind, and, and there was actually some dialogue to the effect that, specifically saying that, oh yeah, that's that's the way these merciless savages are. You know, they probably didn't use that language, but you know, they they don't take care of their their old people like we do. You know, our fine uh, Western civilized values, which is just just like the the the, merc- the phrase merciless Indian savages, you know, referring to warfare. It's exactly the opposite. The you know the the cruelness, you know, from very early on, like the Pequod War, just the absolute cruelty, the over the top, like beyond belief that the the native people just couldn't believe how cruel the colonists waged warfare. It's just a total inversion of truth. Anyway, just the whole propaganda of the colonizer. Yeah, I mean, I know that um, you know there's a story um, that that, that, um, that, our, that my father's people have about. 
um, how they uh, how when those um, when those pioneers were going west, you know, across Dakota territory, um, they would leave their elders behind. They abandoned them on the trail. Um, maybe families got into arguments or something and left and left their elders behind. But we have one story in our family where um, a grandmother was left, a white grandmother was left behind. And so um, um, a Dakota man found her, and, you know, she was um, very upset and crying. And so he, um, I think she was even, like, inbounded in the middle of a river or something. And so he um, he went and got her out, and then she was, she kept hitting him and, like, pointing back. And then he went back and, and got her glasses, her eyeglasses. And then he carried her back, her carried her back to to our um, our camp, um, you know, on his back. And um, and took care of her. They took care of her until she died. And um, and uh, but yeah, it just to, to, for in my family, these are oral stories. In my family, this was just I've always this story was recounted as evidence of just how inhuman white people were, you know. Um, and um, you know, if sort of you know, uh, being raised in a native family. Um, I guess you hear a lot of stories like that where you're told basically that um, you're, you're, what's pointed out to you all the time as a child is is the ways in which white society is, um, what do you call it, hypocritical, you know, and a farce and a lie. And um, and then, you know, how, how much better and truthful our own traditions were. And I guess, you know, um, maybe it's because, my, I don't know, um, that's just what I heard a lot growing up mm-hmm. in my own family. So that's that's uh once again you your 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 book and and your your time on the air uh just and your articles are just so full of these really really pertinent you know uh references to 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 your own your own family and and oral tradition which of course that's a on a side and that's something that Vine Delore himself actually talks a lot about like red earth white lies is a just a real Real uh, takedown of sort of the pretensions of uh, of Western knowledge, and uh, you know counter the counterpoint, uh, the sort of the the uh, marginalized and basically invisibilized uh, to use a word that's con- currently used, um, uh, you know, uh, again, uh, uh, oral knowledge or you know traditional knowledge that actually is often quite um, accurate regarding actual, you know, even uh, geological and other historical events. Anyway, you can talk about that if you want, or we could get back to the, the July 4th, or we could move on to other other mistreatments, current, current day mistreatments of your and other Native peoples regarding the... Yeah, yeah I, I, I definitely recommend reading um, Red Earth um, or... Um, White Lies. I think it's a good book. I, I, I read it when it came out, and um, or maybe maybe a few years later. But and um, but yeah, I know that um, he really did encourage um, folks to. Uh, I think um, really his main point in the book was that um, that our traditional stories should be viewed not simply as um, as fairy tales, but actually be um, rigorously investigated um, academically and taken seriously, basically. Is what he was saying, and of course, and, he um, was very prophetic with all the yeah, huge yeah. amount of current uh, research after the book came out regarding the uh, vaunted Bering Strait hypothesis. 
Yes, you definitely challenge that. And I think the title of the chapter, I'm going off my memory here, is like, um, bridge open, everybody hustle down or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like everyone rushed down to the tip of the continent or of South America. Cause I think at the time he was saying that the oldest sites were found actually at the southern tip of um, South America, like 40,000 plus years old sites. And so everyone must have just rushed to the very state, rushed straight down, you know. A kind of thing, and um, but yeah, I think uh, yeah, and then what else? oh, he has a really great chapter in that book about um, about the whole um, is it called the is it called the the flood the um, that flood that went through the Scablands in Eastern Washington State, right, right, and, bought, and, and brought it, all the great um, all the all the soil to the Willamette Valley in uh-huh. Oregon, yeah, and um, the inland sea that had the dam broke, and and uh, the natural inland sea, and um, and you know he, he gives a story about how they um. I think the, was he an archaeologist or a geologist, a white guy in the early 20th century had sort of performed this theory and he was completely drummed out of academia for it. You know, the usual sort of infighting, territorial infighting between, you know, academics and, and, uh, and later he was completely, um, you know, proven to be true. It was, that was actually what happened, you know, and, um, and so, but in the meantime, I think his, his career was destroyed. Um, he was used as an example of, of the ways in which you know um, how how academic academia is not necessarily <laughs> can be can be very interpersonal you know, but personal beefs instead of actual research and, and actually he did discourage me from going to um, going into academia because um, he told me that it was a lot of it was about um, departmental infighting and departmental in, departmental bo- politics what he said. And um, and then uh, so, he, <laughs> so I always uh, you know it's quite wearing to be in those departments and have to fight you know constantly just in sort of interpersonal fights instead of just doing the work you know. Mm-hmm. So this is you're listening to uh, Wednesday Talk Radio. I'm your regular host Paul Rowland, and I have my once a month guest or co-host, however you prefer to be <laughs> described. It doesn't really matter, does it? Um, uh, Jacqueline Keeler, who's, uh, we're, we've switched this time, just this month. We're on the first Wednesday instead of the second. I hope that didn't confuse anybody who might have been expecting her to be on next week. But she's here now, and so if you're listening, you get the benefit of her presence. And we, uh, we've been talking about uh, the 4th of July... United States myths, founding myths, which is another thing you uh, I really like about your work is the you know you contrast the kind of the origin stories of your and, and other native peoples and the the colonizer origin stories, which is a, a I think a useful frame and, and certainly talked extensively about in your book uh, Stand Off once again, which came out uh, two years ago in. Uh, in the, at the height of the pandemic, I guess that was well. It was kind of your pre-pandemic uh, project, became your pandemic project to finish it anyway. Um, so uh, we, you are invited to call in. This is a call-in show. The number is five zero three two three one eight one eight seven five zero three two three one eight one eight seven. I guess I, maybe I should have gotten into the sort of the main subject originally that we wanted to talk about. These two big Supreme Court cases the Indian Child Welfare Act, and the uh, Navajo water rights case. You wanted to um, just uh, briefly uh, outline the two cases, and then we get deeper into them? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, so the uh, so uh, should I start with the good news or the bad news? <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's do the good news. Yeah. So the good news is that uh, last month, uh, um, no, actually, yeah, in June, uh, um, the Supreme Court upheld the Indian Child Welfare Act, which was a really a uh, case that was. Um, um, a huge concern in Indian country because it had a lot of other aspects to it. Um, so the case was called Holland v. Brackeen, and it, rep- it was, um, you know, uh, basically, it's another case challenging ICWA, which is the Indian Child Welfare Act. Um, and uh, the Indian Child Welfare Act um, was passed, uh, I keep forgetting the year, was it 19, uh, 1978? And... Um, and it was passed to basically stop um, the out adoption um, on a massive scale of Native children from their families. And um, there was a report that was put together and presented before Congress uh, that found that between 25 and 30 percent of Native kids were being removed from their homes um, and put into foster care placement or adopt- adopted out entirely um, to white families. And... Um, and, uh, and you have to put this in the context of um, a nation, right? A nation and its children. Um, you know, if a country found out that, you know, 25 to 30% of its kids were being um, adopted out of the country, that would pose a serious um, concern regarding the, con- the, the country's ability to sustain itself in the future. <clears throat> and, um, and certainly this is a policy um, of ethnic um, um, sort of... Um, uh, genocide that happens in places where children are removed from um, ethnic groups in order to, um, you know, minority groups and stuff, in order to make them disappear. Uh, and you see this happening right now in a war zone in Ukraine uh, where uh, children are being taken into Russia and being placed with Russian families. And, you know, I don't know, you know how they will, you know, it's, it's unclear. I think um, they recently re- released a report on that. And, um, but, so this, so this is, uh, um, so this actually does fall under one of the uh, Geneva Conventions on Genocide. The Geneva Convention was held um, after World War II um, to deal with the, you know, the Holocaust and, and, and the atrocities committed by, uh, by the Nazis and um, um, against, um, you know, um, uh, uh, Jew- the Jewish population in Europe and also other um, ethnic and minority groups and, and you know, so they, uh, so anyway, so uh, so the U.S. so the Congress actually passed this law, and um, and basically it sets up a sort of um, a system by which um, um, by which the uh, there there are active efforts to preserve the family by placing the child with another family member or within the tribe or even with um, a, another American Indian family outside the tribe, and, and I think this is the aspect that was really being challenged was. You know, um, you know, um, and so, uh, but anyway, uh, they, uh, and, and the problem with challenging it is that, uh, and I actually, uh, I should be giving you, I'll send you a link too, but I, I, I covered um, about 10 years ago uh, in 2014, another case came down, um, uh, baby girl um, versus, uh, but anyway, it was, uh, um, it was a case uh, looking at uh, the um, out adoption of a Cherokee child to an, an uh, from Oklahoma to a white family in South Carolina, and um, and so this case, uh, you know, found in favor of the white family, 
and uh, and the child was removed from a Cherokee family that had no had not been were you know considered fit parents and and it was quite a traumatic experience for the entire for all of Indian country it was sort of like a, one of the first um, sort of social media events that the that Indian country as a whole shared together was the removal of baby Veronica from her family the, the Brown family and. Um, it actually came down to a point where the Cherokee Nation, Cherokee Nation doesn't have a reservation, um, but they had um, a house that they had, they owned, that was kind of, kind of diplomatic territory for the tribe. And they'd placed the Brown family in that home. And the governor of Oklahoma, she sent um, armed, uh, um, uh, um, you know, uh, troopers or whatever over in like three SUVs, with guns to go and take the child away from the Cherokee. It was quite traumatic. And, um, anyway, so, um, but, um, but yeah, that was, um, so there's sort of really the focus on particularly uh, Christianizing natives. Um, and, and certainly these are Christian groups that are funding a lot of this in order to take Indian children from their families. And, and so, um, uh, you having Indian children in their families is really important as a way of continuity of culture. I mean, I wouldn't be the person I am today if my parents hadn't raised me. The things that, you know, the oral stories I know, just sort of um, everything. And, and it was, um, and I have to say, when I started reporting on this issue um, in 2013, uh, I, I had the notion that adoption was a good thing. Um, and uh, But when I, be, I, I ended up interviewing a lot of adoptees um, who call themselves lost birds after a um, a young ba- a baby that was found at wounded knee after the massacre and was raised by a white um, um, army um, uh, guy, <laughs> um, you know, her name was Lost Bird, and and, um, and so um, just the track. I mean, I had not realized how much trauma goes into it, and and it was a huge education to me to to learn about it. And I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but. The um, the adoption industry in in the United States is a for profit industry, and that was something I learned a lot more about, um, and it was quite shocking actually. There is very little regulation that goes on, and um, and so uh, that means that um, that children are sold in this country, uh, babies are sold, and and they have a price, um, and, and and these mothers are are often given money, they're paid, and um, with baby Veronica, her mother. Um, was targeted because her husband was overseas um, fighting in Afghanistan. And so because uh, the the yearly demand, uh, annual demand for babies uh, far exceeds the supply. I think at the time I was writing about it, the supply of adoptable babies in the United States was like estimated about 11,000 a year. But the demand is like around 30,000 at the time. I'm sure it's, numbers are different now, but but it's um and so this causes a huge they're looking for babies right so they so were getting them from overseas it, yeah interesting to think that how many of those I, I hate to say this but how many of those you know Ukrainian children that ended up in Russia are actually maybe going to be, end up in the homes of American adoptive parents because there are I actually know personally someone who who adopted two or three Russian kids so anyway. It's just a grim thought. Yeah, no. Well, but I think their goal is to Russianize them, so they probably will keep them in right. the country, you know. And then, um, but the, um, but, uh, but yeah. So they, uh, so these these babies are so you know around around that time, a lot of foreign countries were closing the doors on American adoption, our adoption because there's so little regulation. Um, you can read Reuters did this amazing reporting on 
rehoming children where there's so little regulation in this country that when you adopted a child from overseas and let's say you don't like that child or you're unhappy with that child well you know what you can do you can put them up um on the internet and say anybody who wants they have these bulletin boards at the time where people could post unwanted children like you would a pet right and then anybody could take them and it's totally legal <laughs> and so you had pedophiles going to these boards and taking the children and so it's just um it's so it's, it's the wild west as far as adoption goes it's completely and um, and then I was also sent brochures from an adoption agency in Florida, which had the prices of babies on it based on race and um, ethnicity. And uh, white children were, of course, I think about $40,000 for a white baby, you know, um, and then Native kids were the next highest price, like 32000 And then, you know, black and um, Hispanic children, Latinx children were, were much lower, like half that price. So- I mean, so they can make money by marketing children as native, and um, and so a lot of people are told they're native when they're adopted, but they're not because they just wanted to make more money selling them. So and and of course all the paperwork is is um, right. can be um, um, is, um, is is closed um, closed adoptions, so they don't have to prove. It. So it's all so it's quite. We, we we need to get rid of for profit adoption agencies. We need everything needs to be non profit, and uh, which is what happened in Australia, and that stopped a lot of the irregularities and abuse. And then and then also the different positions. Oklahoma had actually auctioned off the position of being um, the um, sort of the agents the <laughs> agency the state agency that oversaw um, um, out of state adoptions. Um, was actually auctioned off, and the position was purchased by an adoption agency owner. And so he okayed the adoption of, of a baby from Oklahoma to South Carolina. It's a completely corrupt system. And, right, you, and yeah, so that's so... Well, let me, anyway, so... I wanna, go ahead. Well, I just want to get into... Maybe, uh, maybe we haven't talked quite enough yet about so, some of the, the implications of, of it, but I did want to... Um, once again, give out the phone number for anyone who wants to engage in this conversation with, as I said, Jacqueline Keeler, a citizen of the Navajo Nation, and on her dad's side, Yankton uh, Dakota, and uh, the author of uh, a, a number of, 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 well, you curated some books and you authored most recently Standing, Standoff, Standing Rock, the Bundy Movement, and the American Story of Sacred Lands. And this is your chance to talk to Jacqueline Keeler. Uh, Just a quick reminder um, uh, before we continue with the the discussion of the Indian Child Welfare Act and then moving on to the the Navajo water rights case. This is a listener-supported station. You out there listening to this program in real time, if that's what you're doing, you could be listening afterwards on our website, which is kboo.fm. And I say that uh, that website because that's where you can go to be a listener, supporter, be a member, become a member of our station and support this uh, brave 54-year experiment in uh, community radio, listener-sponsored community radio that puts out such amazing public affairs and music and cultural stuff for your enjoyment so please go to kboo.fm if you haven't done that recently, and you can click on donate. So I just want to r- real quick read. I know you've probably gone over this already some, but um, to ensure that uh, that 
uh, over one-third of all Native children that had been removed from their homes, as you said, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s would never happen again and uh, placed with non-Indian families and institutions with no ties to tribe. The law, ICWA, established three preferences for the placement of Native children when they are adopted or put into foster care. The first preference is for placement with a child's extended family, then to other members of the tribe, and if neither of those is available to members of another tribe. Those preferences were challenged by the state of Texas, oh no, here's Texas again, and by non-Indian adoptive parents. They argued first that the law unconstitutionally supplanted the core function states in their traditional role in family law matters. And second, that the adoption preferences were an unconstitutional racial classification. On Thursday, the Supreme Court, this is uh, about a month ago, three weeks ago, explicitly left the Indian trial welfare law intact, prompting joy among Indian tribes. The court's decision, however, left one important question unresolved, whether the statute system of preferences for Native adoptive parents amounts to an unconstitutional racial preference. Uh, what about that? Yeah, so, you know, the concept of race uh, in all of this is, is, is part of why it was so uh, it's such an important case, because uh, you can be of any perceived race and be a tribal citizen, so race is irrelevant, really. I mean, uh, to be a tribal citizen is to be uh, is a political status. Uh, you're a citizen of a nation and, uh, and has, um, has no relevance. It's, um, it's sort of you can be a black native. You can be a white presenting native. You you know you can um, you can be anything. I mean, it just doesn't you know. <laughs> it's sort of a that's sort of an irrelevant um, framing of that. Mm-hmm. And this is why it was dangerous to sovereignty because it's sort of denying our political existence. And and this has really been the focus of uh, of um, of. Um, of 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 the of the U.S. policy and before that the colonial policy towards Native nations um, that it seeks to occupy and to and to disappear um, is um, is to make our political reality disappear and it's this um, fuzziness of our political outline that makes um, you know appropriation of our culture of our identity uh, um, you know masketry makes all of that really quite possible and um, and so. Uh, the Supreme Court, um, there's just so much case law reaffirming the political existence of tribal nations, going back to the Constitution itself, which mentions us in the same framing as um, um, as foreign nations, right? And, and from, until the 1920s, when, uh, um, when Native people were made citizens of the United States, we were always regarded as, we were not counted in the U.S. Census because we weren't citizens of the country. And so... Um, um, so we were aliens um, to the U.S. to the occupying U.S. government. So, um, so we have um, always been separate politically, um, and um, and so uh, the the continued existence of Native nations um, reaffirms that continued persistent political existence. And um, so, uh, but the U.S. always tries to deny. Um, you know, they won't let Native nations have be seated uh, at the UN, the United Nations. And um, both Canada and the U.S. fight that. Um, and uh, so there are many ways in which they try to obscure our existence. And then, of course, we have rights to the land, which is the greatest threat, um, which is why our political reality is constantly trying to be, um, trying to be squashed. So, um, 
Well, maybe with that, um, looks like we got a, a caller. Um, not sure who that is. If they want to get on the air, um, Greg, let's go, let's go to our caller, and then um, I think your the the second case you want to talk about also has some uh, major implications. The water rights case of your own uh, uh, tribe, the Navajo Nation, um, and uh, and its implications. But let's go to uh, our first caller, Greg. Go ahead, you're on the air. Hi there. Um, so I thought you were gonna that Jackie was gonna be on uh, Jacqueline was gonna be on next week. So I'm not quite prepared, but you know I wanted to just mention that the whole pretendian thing that I think uh, you know white culture such as it is is uh, you know because we don't have a culture you know it's just that perhaps the Christian thing is part of the culture here, but it's basically just trying to sell us everything you know mm-hmm. and um, uh, so when they run into an actual culture like uh, indigenous people, then they're attracted to it. And that was just kind of the, the gist of what I was going to say the last time uh, Jacqueline was on there, you know. Okay. Well, I think, you know, colonization is a form of, of culture. It's a kind of a, a bizarre, you know, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a culture that basically has to expand itself and sort of appropriate I mean, that's the nature of the culture itself. But anyway, Jacqueline, you want to respond to that? And again, 503-231-8187. We've only got 15 minutes left, and we got the whole Navajo water rights case to yeah. talk about. Yeah, well, I, I just, uh, um, yeah, I, I would say that, um, you know, one of the things I often talk about is um, is white privilege, right? And, um, and, and I see white privilege as a house that white supremacy built, Right, and in that sense, it is a culture. In um, you know, it's um, it frames how people view the world. And when I when I describe it, as, I describe it as a house because because it's like um, it's the world a person lives in. Um, I also compare it to sort of a um, you know sort of mazes that they put laboratory rats in, where you um, have to run the maze, and and that maze is kind of your whole world, right? It directs which direction you go, where you can you know do things and and so you kind of don't it's almost invisible in a way and but for people outside of that maze or that house you know we can see the outlines and structures of it and um, and this is the perspective of course of the outsider of the of the minority or quote-unquote minority and um and so um so yeah so i think that that is um is what we bring to the table and 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 in my book stand up i go a lot into sort of the um what I call the um, the DNA or the algorithm of each group. So I focus, I contrast um, the Bundys and and sort of you know their um, colonial DNA um, and um, uh, you know they're fa- they're the descendants of folks who came, Quakers who came over to North Carolina in the 1600s um, and um, and then later became Mormons in Indiana. Um, but um, but yeah, they. Um, um, you know, kind of like how that sort of, how that, and I call it an algorithm because it's a set of, of, of sort of, um, of accepted if-then statements, like concepts, like this, then, and this, you know, and within that, that is the, that is the, the DNA of the culture. And then, um, and then I contrast it, of course, to, um, to, to uh, Lakota and Dakota culture and how that operates. And, um, with Standing Rock, and because I contrast the Bundys with with the Standing Rock um, No Dapple protests, 
and um, and sort of you know kind of what are the cultural origins of each of them, and and what does that mean as far as how do we how do we come together? My 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 my, my proposition is how do we create a third way, right? Um, sort of a way in which we come together and um, and and are not is openly in opposition. And and um, I actually um um. I sent um, I sent you this link, Paul. Um, it's for a piece I wrote um, way back in actually twenty August twenty thirteen. After actually, uh, so yeah, the Baby Veronica case was decided in August twenty thirteen. So, um, but um, about called Baby Veronica and Indian sovereignty fifty years after the march on Washington. And there I go, and it's sort of um, I, I still think this is a very good perspective that I gave on this, looking at sort of what that third way may look like, um, and. Um, and so uh, um, I think I'm, I've always been meaning to write more about this, but my book does touch on that as well, is how do we, um, how do we make a way together? And um, in some ways, maybe that way may be separate. Um, you know, I, I look at the concept of real sovereignty for, for tribes, um, real um, political sovereignty, and, um, and sort of this parallel twin um, government of, of the occupation, colonial government, and then the um, the, the native uh, nations government working together side by side, and um, and I and I, um, I think the wampum of the Iroquois, my husband's people, um, is really good showing of that, which is the two rose wampum, where um, when they had made their first treaty with the Dutch, um, they basically had one row of the wampum symbolized the boats that the, that the Europeans came on, and the other row represents the canoe of the Iroquois Confederacy, and they are side by side, but they don't touch. So I think sometimes, um, so, I, I, so that's sort of the different ideas I have around the concept of culture, and also how do we, how do we bridge that? Well, you had some wonderful writing about the, just about the experience of the, of the, the no dapple, the, 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 Amazing movement that just sort of gelled in, in is just sort of a, a sort of magical coming together, really. Of course, you know, hard work of organizing led initially by, by Native youth. But, uh, but just the, the way it all came together and the experience that people had in that camp, I think it seems to me, it's all, it seemed to me as, as an activist that in my life, you know, and, and life is so short. <laughs> On this planet, it's like we're here and then we're gone, and it seems like we barely have time to even sort of educate ourselves about how we got to this place. Let alone fighting against these huge, huge uh, historic, economic, whatever forces. But, but anyway, the the the, the experience to me, the experience of, of of collective struggle has been the most powerful examples of, of, I think, exactly this, what you call the third way, because it creates an opening for people to come together and recreate. As, as you say in your book, it actually allowed the sort of recreation of the, uh, I'll garble the name of the, you know, the, the campfires of the different uh, Lakota, Dakota peoples that uh, sort of came together there at uh, at Standing Rock and sort of gave the the native people a chance to actually see you know sort of indigenous governance in under under incredible pressure but you know sort of at work and it, it gave yeah. non-indians a chance to actually see 
a different way to like organize our lives. And then, you know, the tragedy of how it, how it ended and how like so, like so many people looking back on whatever revolutionary moment or, you know, time of, of great collective uprising, you know, that, that has almost always ends. Anyway, that's what I think. Yeah, I totally agree. I think uh, it is um, an amazing um, experience and, and, you know, we, um, yeah, I think I think that's really well stated. So, but yeah, I um I guess we only have a few minutes left, but I guess I'll touch briefly on the um on the uh, the other uh, Supreme Court case that was decided, um, which uh, was um, the um, uh, um, a case concerning uh, the Colorado River and the water um, on the Colorado River, and um, so the. Uh, the Navajo Nation um, has been pursued a case for about 20 years, um, trying to get, um, you know, basically, uh, um, it's the case is um, a consolidated case called Arizona the Navajo Nation and Department of Interior, and consolidated with the Department of Interior of the Navajo Nation, and um, basically they were trying to get um, um, the Navajo Nation has a, an issue where. About 30% of the Navajos living on the Navajo Nation do not have access to running water, drinking water. And, uh, and there's, generally speaking, a lack of infrastructure investment in the Navajo Nation, which means that the Navajo Nation's population on the reservation has, has not grown. It's remained about 170,000, while the population of the Navajo Nation itself has grown. It's now about 400,000. So there just is not there are not the resources for Navajo people to live on the reservation, which pushes them off the reservation in order to. Um, and the Navajo Nation is the size of Ireland; it's the size of a European country, and um, and so Navajo people are forced to leave, which you know has its own um, consequences as far as um, you know uh, dilution of the nation. And um, imagine if that percentage of people had to leave another country, say France, to find work. It would have an impact. And so so the lack of investment in infrastructure means that the Navajo Nation cannot access the water that it has rights to. Uh, Native nations, because they were there first, um, I think it's, what's the quote, first in time, first in right, or something, uh, the law of the West, water. And um, basically, so Native nations have the first rights to the water, they're the oldest rights. And so, um, and we've seen that play out here in Oregon with the Klamath water fights um, in southern Oregon. Um, and uh, when, when water becomes um, a limited um, resource, uh, then of course a lot of antagonisms happen. And Native nations have not been on the ta- have not been at the table um, in negotiating these water sort of treaties, including the, the treaty, the Columbia River Treaty, which is being renegotiated with Canada. Uh, once again, um, the uh, Native nations here in the Pacific Northwest have not been, are not allowed to be at the table, and so um, so so what the Navajo Nation was attempting to do with this lawsuit that was heard before the Supreme Court um, was to say that the the, the the U.S. government has the responsibility to uh, to basically fund infrastructure to deliver the water to Navajo communities. And what the Supreme Court ruled was that the United States does not have that responsibility. And so um, they, they, the Navajo Nation was saying that this was implied in the treaty, um, and the treaty basically says that, that we would have the you know, space to live our traditional life, the res, you know, resources, and that would, since our traditional life included raising cattle and sheep, and, um, and that this would, you know, we, don't, we need the resources to do these things. 
And so, uh, so, but the Supreme Court ruled against it. And so, um, uh, I think, uh, I wrote a piece in Atmos, um, uh, magazine, um, about it, um, in, in March called, uh, Colorado River, the Navajo Nation's Forever Home is in Crisis. And, um, the, the, the case actually looks at the Navajo Nation's right to the little Colorado River, which feeds into the Colorado River. So this, ent- this entails a lot of Western Navajo Nation, including my mom's home community of Cameron, um, Arizona, which is right near the south rim of the Grand Canyon. And, um, and so we are right near where the Colorado, the little Colorado empties into the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon. And that area is called the Convergence Site. And, and it's a sacred site for many tribes. And I write about that here. Let, let me just, and, uh, I, I just yeah. break in real quick because we only have a few minutes left and, yeah. and maybe we'll be able to sneak in one caller. But, you know, the thought just occurred to me, maybe this helps to put it in, in, in some perspective possibly. Tell me what you think. So the, the cases, the Bolt and Baloney decisions that basically affirmed the native tribes, uh, treaty tribes of the Northwest right to the fish entering their traditional waterways, it, 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 it through the long process since, the, 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 the courts actually did set, set up structures that said, you know, uh, half of no fish, you know, do, doesn't doesn't mean anything. So basically, mm-hmm. set up all these structures to affirmatively make sure it's now it's all in question because of climate change and everything. But that there's actually enough fish. So fit hatcheries and stuff is is that a, is there a parallel there? Um, I I don't know if there's a parallel to that exactly. I think that what they were looking at. Um, and, and what I found in my research was um, the uh, um, a case in Montana, um, and um, and it uh, um, it basically affirmed um, it, it set up the whole um, 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 the sort of the implied um, sort of um, rights within treaties um, to support water um, on the reservation. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that was the one they were looking at mostly. So I guess I was just thinking of the the, can, the, um, idea, the idea that there's yeah. an affirmative. Uh, they have to that the federal government must take affirmative steps to secure yeah, water, yeah, and they do yeah. not require to do yeah, that. Yeah, I think um, you know I really I think I, in my article I just sent you a link to I cite a lot. Um, well, I um, there's some really great um, 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 amicus briefs that were submitted um, with um, with with the. Um, with the case um, on behalf of the Navajo Nation, and um, you know, I spoke to um, uh, some of the uh, folks who wrote those amicus briefs, and uh, and, um, and and definitely was um, yeah, <laughs> it was. Uh, I didn't hear them cite those cases. But I'm sure those are the play a role. I mean, uh, but uh, but yeah, basically the court. I mean, it was kind of crazy to be listening to the live broadcast of um, of the arguments and um, and to hear. Uh, um, here, the uh, the federal government's attorney uh, basically arguing about uh, you know one of the ways they could preclude the Navajo Nation's right to the Little Colorado um, because of course you know if they t- if the Little Col- if the Navajo Nation were to use all the resources of the Little Colorado that would reduce the amount of water in the Colorado River which is dependent on by tens of millions of people right and um, and so so developing you know. Um, Ways that Navajos can access that little Colorado River water would would have an impact on you know Los Angeles, all kinds of places that depend on the Colorado. And uh, so he was talking about building a dam that would stop the little Colorado from entering the Navajo Nation. 
Yeah. It's kind of Moving extreme. argued by a, um, an attorney for the federal government, right? And having um, Sotomayor sort of, you know, play the devil's advocate questioning him on that idea. You know, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, they don't want Navajos to have the resources to live there. It's not a priority for the U.S. government. The priority is to starve us out so that we will leave. And, and, uh, and no big surprise there, unfortunately. And, and another thing that wasn't brought up in the case and in the arguments was the fact that so much that there so much of the area is contaminated by uranium waste created by the federal government. Well, on that on that note, on that huge note, we, which we don't have any time to get into because okay, we're sorry. out of time. Thank you so much, Jacqueline Keeler. Appreciate it. Bye, everybody. You're listening to KBOO Portland ninety point seven FM. The time is. 8.59 a.m. tuned in to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming on the web at kboo.fm. KBOO Community Radio is conducting a survey, and we want to hear from you. Your valuable feedback about KBOO will help shape the types of music, news, and public affairs programming we bring you and our community in the years ahead. We're also interested in how you listen to KBOO, and we'll use this feedback to help serve you better. The survey is anonymous. However, you will have an opportunity to provide your contact information to enter a drawing. 10 lucky winners will receive a $50 gift card. The survey is open now, and the deadline to participate is Sunday, July 16th. Go to our website at kboo.